Well, good morning. Excited to be with you this morning. When Dan asked me, I don't know, two or three weeks back if I would teach today and told me what the passage was, it was not a whole lot of verses. And I thought, is there a, is there a sermon, a whole sermon in that? But it really blessed me to prepare this sermon on those few verses. Um, and so I hope that that is the case for you guys um, hearing it as well, because there is definitely a whole sermon and more that I'm going to say um, um, in, these, in these verses. So we're going to continue this morning in our study of Luke. And last week, Pastor Dan took us through the announcement of Christ's birth to, as he pointed out, one of the most unlikely of audiences, a group of shepherds out in the field. And so today, we're going to look at the response of the shepherds to that good news, and we're going to consider, among other things, how that should mirror our own response to the good news of the coming of Christ. And as I looked at commentaries and different things in preparation for this teaching, there was no shortage of information on that, by the way, how the shepherd's reaction to the angel's message models for us how we should respond to the good news. That seems to be the standard take on this passage, and it's a good one. Don't don't get me wrong. We're going to go there in a minute. Um, But before we get to that, I want to walk through the passage from a little bit different perspective. And that's the, and that's not saying, you know, one thing instead of another or one approach is wrong and the other one's right. It's just saying that one thing in addition to another, one way of looking at it in addition to another way of looking at it. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the passage from two different angles this morning. And the first thing that we're going to do is consider this passage not in light of the shepherd's reaction but in light of Luke's purpose of helping Theophilus, and by extension us, be certain of what he had been taught. Is what he's been taught correct, and can it be trusted? And that's why we've called this series, that's why Dan has named this series, Certainty. And as an aside, Luke's trustworthiness as an historian, it's been put on trial several times over many years, and always it has prevailed. Um, Apologist Frank Turek talks about an archaeologist named Sir William Ramsey. And Ramsey set out, like so many others have in the past, to disprove the Bible and specifically to disprove the events recorded in Luke and Acts. Because Luke is very specific about events in his, in his writings. And in doing this, he actually ended up being one of Luke's biggest fans. Um, Turek says, after spending 20 years on location... Ramsey concluded that Luke should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. He wrote, Ramsey wrote, You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. And so if you remember circling back to what his purpose is, we won't read the verses again, but in verses 1 through 4 of Luke, we saw that he had listed several things that he wanted to do. He wanted to compile a narrative. And when he wanted it to be about things that had been, he said, accomplished among us. He wanted it to be a result of eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And as a result of that, he wanted to take those things and he wanted to turn them into an orderly account for Theophilus. And as verse 4 says, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So we notice a few things about this. Luke is sharing things, he says, that have been accomplished among us. So these are things that people in the Christian community of that day, these are things that people who were still alive when he was writing these things would have known about. So if he got them wrong, there are people who could put up their hand and say, wait a minute, right? Um, These things were also, he said, told to him by eyewitnesses. And I believe that the passage that we're going to look at this morning was probably told to him by Mary. 
And he said the account was to be orderly. So when you set out to do those things that he's listed there, you have to be selective in what you report. You can't say everything that you might want to say, even some things that would be interesting information, right? There's a quote attributed to author William Faulkner that writers like to cite. And Faulkner says, you must be willing to kill your darlings. And what he means by that is no matter how much you like that sentence or you like that paragraph that you wrote, even if it's the most perfect thing you've ever written, if it doesn't serve the purpose of the work, if it doesn't move the story along, you have to let it go. And Sir William Ramsey also wrote a book called St. Paul, the Traveler and Roman Citizen. And in this book, he analyzes the historicity of the book of Acts, which, of course, is also written by Luke. And here's what he says in that book. If a brief history is to be a true work of art, it must omit a great deal and concentrate the reader's attention on a certain number of critical points in the development of events, elaborating these sufficiently to present them in lifelike and clearly intelligible form. And then he says, true historical genius lies in selecting the great crises, the great agents, and the great movements. In other words, what he's saying, again, is that you have to choose those things that best serve your purpose. And Ramsey's point was that Luke was a master at this. In fact, I would say, because Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke does this perfectly. The Bible gives us all the things that we need for life and godliness. There are perhaps many things that we'd like to know that it doesn't tell us. I know that's the case for me. There's a lot of questions that I have about things that aren't in there, right? But here's the thing. Nothing is missing that anyone can point to and say, if you'd only given me this bit of information, I would have believed. We have enough in the scriptures. So one of the first questions we should ask of a text in Luke is how does it serve Luke's purpose? And really that's among the first questions we should ask of any biblical text. How does it serve the purposes of the author? Why did he choose this event to report as opposed to others? And we have a, a similar take from the Apostle John regarding his gospel. He makes the statement that Jesus did many other things that are not recorded in that book. He couldn't record them all because simply it would have been impossible to record them all. But those he did include, he says, were designed to be laser-focused on his purpose, which in his case was showing that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And so the same is going to be true for Luke. So let's read the passage this morning. Um, it is Luke chapter 2, and we're going to be covering verses 15 through 20. It says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So the first thing we want to think about before we start talking about the shepherds' reaction is the certainty of Messiah's birth. How is this passage laser-focused on Luke's purpose of helping us be sure of what we've been taught? Well, one thing that the Jewish people had been taught was that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The scriptures foretold this in Micah 5, 2. We read that verse each year during Advent, and I'm always impressed by the child who gets to read that verse and has to say, Ephrathah. 
You know? I'm sometimes tongue-tied by that, so, but they always do a great job. But here's Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. And even the Jewish leaders, up until the time that we're talking about here in Luke's day, many of whom, by the way, would later reject Christ, they knew this as well. We find this out in Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men come to Herod asking about Christ. Herod is, is upset about the potential of another king, right? And so in Matthew 2, beginning in verse 3, we read, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, meaning the prophet Micah. And so now here we are, hundreds of years after Micah wrote those words. And the angels are telling the shepherds that what was prophesied has happened. The Savior has been born in Bethlehem. We saw this last week in Dan's sermon in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the day. right? As Dan pointed out last week across the entire arc of history from the garden forward, the day has now come. And so the passage tells us that the shepherds went with haste or they went quickly. And lo and behold, they found things just as the angel had said and just as the Lord had said through Micah all those many years ago. Can you imagine being an eyewitness to the fulfillment of a prophecy from hundreds of years ago? One that you've probably been taught your whole life and you probably might have had no expectation that you would ever see it fulfilled and yet here you are a humble shepherd standing in a stable in Bethlehem and you are looking down on the fulfillment of that prophecy you see lying in that manger squirming around in swaddling clothes what Micah wrote about over 400 years ago that is an amazing thing to think about J.C. Ryle says of the shepherds, they went to Bethlehem in haste. They found everything exactly as it had been told them. Their simple faith received a rich reward. They had the mighty privilege of being the first of all mankind after Mary and Joseph, who saw the newborn Messiah with believing eyes. Again, that's an incredible thing to think about. This, this is eyewitness verification also for Luke and his readers that what, has prof- what was prophesied in Micah has now taken place. And secondly, I think we see that the shepherds are eyewitnesses also to the fulfillment of God's promises in a much shorter term that were made to Mary and Joseph. If you remember back in Luke 1 when we talked about the angel visiting Mary, um, and behold, you will conceive in your womb, the angel told her, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then we read in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, about Joseph. He had decided, because the scriptures say he was an honorable man, to put Mary away quietly when he found out that she was with child. And then he, too, received a visit from an angel. And verse 20 says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And again, as was told to Mary, she will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people. From their sins. 
And now all this has come to fruition, just as God had promised. An angel announced the conception and birth to Mary. An angel confirmed the miraculous nature of the conception and birth to Joseph. And now a host of angels has heralded that birth having taken place. And so we can add now scores of shepherds to Mary and Joseph as recipients of an angelic visitation. And as we see in today's passage, eyewitnesses to the event of the ages, the birth of the Messiah as foretold. He has indeed been born in Bethlehem. And we also see that when they told those gathered around what they had seen, they, were, they expressed wonder or amazement. 17 and 18 says, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Luke likes this word wondered or amazed. He uses it multiple times in his writing, often to describe people's reaction to the work of God and specifically to the work of Christ. It's the word that he uses in the book of Acts in chapter 3 when um, Peter and John heal the man crippled from birth. He uses that word to describe the reaction of the crowd. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? And so Luke wrote this down so that we could be just as amazed at God's faithfulness throughout the ages. And so we can have confidence that the Lord who kept his promises in the past will keep his promises still today. And because of this, And we talked about how amazing this was for the shepherds. But think about this. One day, we will have the experience of the shepherds. We, too, will be eyewitnesses of the fulfillment of prophecy. Listen to what Paul writes to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel. And with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, he says, encourage one another with these words. And one reason we can encourage one another with these words is that we have so many examples of God's faithfulness throughout Scripture, including the passage that we're looking at today. So we can be confident that he will do what he has promised to do. One thing is return for his own. Just as he came the first time, exactly as it was prophesied and exactly as he said he would, he will come again. Just as the shepherds, and this is so cool, this is one of the things that really kind of blew me away when I was thinking about and preparing for this. Just as the shepherds looked into the face of Jesus in the manger all those years ago, we're going to one day look into his face. Because we can trust that he will do what he has said he will do, and that is return again. And in the meantime, in the meantime, we can trust that he will never leave us or forsake us and that whatever comes to pass will be for our good and for his glory. You know, I don't know about you, but I've been a bit disconcerted, might be too light a word, by the news in recent days. Um, And, you know, how marvelous is it, though, that we don't have to view such things through the lens of uncertainty. We don't have to view such things without knowing that the one who orchestrates all events is working them out in such a way that all he has said will come to pass. So that's, that's some of the ways that Luke is helping Theophilus, and by extension us, be certain of what he'd been taught. But as I said on the front end, there are other things we can learn from this account, and they are not divergent things, so there's going to be a little bit of overlap here. 
But we're going to do a bit of a rewind, and we're going to walk through the passage again, and we're going to think about the passage in light of the example of the shepherds, because I think that's a valid and important way to look at it as well. So the first thing we see in this regard is we see that the shepherds responded in faith. Let me read verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. I mean, notice here there was not any hesitation. This thing has happened, they said. There was no doubt in their mind that when they got to Bethlehem, they would find things just as the angel had described them. And in fact, that's what we see in the next verse, verse 16. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. The shepherds were as sure out in the field that this thing had happened as if they were already in Bethlehem and had seen it. And so what the shepherds exhibit here is what we normally would call faith. The Bible says in Hebrews 11.1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. They had conviction that this thing they'd been told was so before they had seen it. And that's how faith is always presented in Scripture. Believing God simply because of who God is. We have a lot of examples of that in Scripture, by the way. God told Noah to build an ark because the entire world was going to be covered in water. And Noah believed God before he ever saw one drop of rain. God told Abraham, Abram at the time, to leave his home and his country for a land that he'd never been to and that from him would come a great nation. And Abraham obeyed God before he had a single offspring or physiologically speaking, any hope that that was a possibility. But he believed God, and the scriptures say God counted that to him as righteousness. Joseph told the people of Israel to take his body with them when they left Egypt before a single one of them was ever enslaved. And as we just said, Mary, when she was told she would have a child by the Holy Spirit, also believed God, despite not understanding how that would take place. She simply said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So faith is believing that God will do what he has said he will do. In fact, it is believing that what God has said will happen is as good as done. And we see that that's the kind of faith we see in the shepherds. The angel told them, you'll find this in Bethlehem. God has done this thing, and off they went to see it. No hesitation, no doubt. Let's go see this thing, they said, that the Lord has done. Now you might say, well, of course they did, right? The sky filled up with angels. I'd believe that too, right? Well, don't be so sure, right? We have examples of people in Scripture exposed to miracles who don't exhibit faith. In the account of Lazarus and the rich man, we we learn this. The rich man begs Abraham to send someone from beyond the grave to warn his lost relatives. And what is Abraham's response to him? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let him hear them. But then Lazarus says, no, Father Abraham, if someone, or the rich man, I should say, has no Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead... They will repent. And then Moses says, if they do not hear Moses, or Abraham says, I'm getting the names all mixed up, right? (laughs) Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. And of course, this foreshadows the rejection of Christ that would happen even after he rose from the dead. And what's more miraculous than that? And we know also that the miracles of Jesus were sometimes attributed to Beelzebub by many of the Jewish leaders. 
much more than some angels in front of them. They had the God-man himself in front of them, and they couldn't see it. You know, Dan mentioned last week, um, I made a comment about people um, wanting God to write their name in the sky. And um, this is from Frank Turek's book as well. He talks about an atheist being asked, well, what evidence for God would you accept? And this person said, well, if he looked up in the sky and he saw written in giant letters, hey, Roger, this is God, then he would believe. But you know what? I don't know that he would. I mean, Jesus essentially wrote, hey, everybody, I'm God, with his entire life, and he was still crucified. And we have that life recorded in Scripture, and people still don't believe it. So I don't think necessarily that the issue is lack of evidence. So then what does make the difference? Well, God makes the difference. God makes the difference. Paul is clear in Ephesians. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So what's not of our own doing? Paul says faith is not of our own doing. Faith is a gift that God gives to those to whom he chooses to give it. So the shepherds believed God and immediately acted on that belief because they were enabled to do so by the same God who brought them the message. How gracious is that of God? So if you're here this morning and you've placed your faith in Jesus, you can be just as sure of the promises to you in his word as the shepherds were that there is a baby, was a baby waiting for them in Bethlehem. Listen as Paul talks here about the trajectory of our lives as Christians. This is from Romans 8, beginning in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. One interesting thing to note about that passage is the way Paul phrases it, in that all of the things in Paul's list are past tense, even glorified. He doesn't say those who are justified will be glorified. He's saying if the Lord has saved you, you're as good as glorified. You can take that to the bank. If God has promised something in his word, you can say with the shepherds, let us go and see this thing that has happened, because it is as good as done. In our world today, wow, I mean, that kind of assurance, that kind of assurance is an incredible comfort. I mean, what else can you be so sure of? Your investments, your health, your safety, your family's safety? You know, the world likes to say there's nothing sure but death and taxes, um, but... Praise God, that's an incomplete list. (laughs) We can also be sure of the promises of God. And we're reminded of that by the shepherd's confidence in the message that they receive from the Lord. Well, the next thing we see is that the shepherds tell what God revealed to them. Verse 17 says, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So what's the natural response of receiving incredibly good news and finding out that that news was true, it should be to tell others about the wonderful thing that you found. William Hendrickson, in his commentary on this passage, says, So thoroughly convinced were these men of the truth of their story, and so sure were they of its importance, that they were willing to risk disbelief and even ridicule. And he uses a really neat example 
from 2 Kings 7 to make his point. So I'm going to share that with you this morning. Um, this, is, this is about a time in Israel's history when the city of Jerusalem had been under siege from the Syrian army for a long time. And people were starving inside the city. In fact, things had gotten so bad, people had resorted to cannibalism in order to survive. But we see, if you read the passage, that God sent confusion among the Syrian army. And he caused them to flee, leaving behind all their provisions. But there were four lepers who, because they were unclean, were outside the city gate. And these four lepers decided, well, if we're going to die, we might as well die at the hands of the Syrians as of starvation. And so they went to the Syrian camp to essentially turn themselves in and beg for mercy. But when they got there, what they found was the camp was abandoned and all the provisions had been left behind. And so they were overjoyed and they began to eat and they began to drink to their heart's content. And they began to otherwise take advantage of the bounty that was before them. And Hendrickson points out, 2 Kings 7, verse 9. Then they said to one another, We're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So essentially what they're saying is, we have found something wonderful, something that will save people's lives. And it would be wrong to keep that news to ourselves. Did you get back in the quote what Hendrickson said? The shepherds were convinced of two things, that the story was true and that the story was important. So if we're convinced of both of those things where the gospel is concerned, that it's true and that it's important, we should not keep it to ourselves. We dare not keep it to ourselves. A German reformer, Martin Bucer, said, We may understand from this that true faith does not exist without confession and that it desires that the truth which it has truly conceived be made known to others. Faith, he says, wants to communicate that truth to others as a most excellent and incomparable treasure. So do I view, do we view the message of the gospel as an incomparable treasure, as food and drink to starving people? And Jesus says in Matthew thirteen forty four, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has And buys that field. So do my day-to-day interactions with people, does the way that I live my life in general say that I view the gospel as a treasure? And I have to say that in my case, that's not always the case. And so I have to repent of that. And I have to ask the Lord to give me the perspective and the courage of the shepherds to tell the good news revealed to me, revealed to us about Christ. We haven't heard it from angels directly, but we've heard it from God himself in his word, nonetheless. Next we see that the shepherd's message provoked or provokes a reaction. Verse 18 says that all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And we see two reactions here. We see wonder and we see treasuring and pondering. And the biblical sense of the first one is usually to marvel utterly, to be amazed. People were amazed at what the shepherds told them. And no, no doubt, it was an amazing, incredible story. As I mentioned earlier, Luke uses that word a lot. Amazement or wonder is a natural reaction to an amazing account. But it's not necessarily a mark of belief. People are often amazed at the works of God while never acknowledging him as the author of those works. 
I mean, think about the Grand Canyon or an incredible sunset, things that wouldn't even be in the category of miracles. How many people see those things every day, but yet take no thought of the one who created them? Phil Riken, in his commentary on this passage, says, this is not to say the amazement and the wonder, he means. This is not to say that everyone believed them. People were surprised by the shepherd's story, and they probably talked about it for months afterward. But this does not mean that all came to faith in Christ. People wonder, he says, about all kinds of things that they never fully believe. But we see something a bit different from Mary. We see that Mary treasured up these things and pondered them. I mean, think of all that, that Mary had seen and had heard for the past nine months. Visits from angels, confirmations from Elizabeth and Zechariah, Joseph still agreeing to marry her because of his own encounter with an angel. And now this. And she was storing up a treasury of God's faithfulness, and now she had something else to add to that treasury. Riken goes on and he says the adoration of the shepherds must have been a great encouragement to Mary. What they said about the city of David and about her child's identity as Lord in Christ confirmed the promises that God had made to her some nine months earlier. So one of the questions that I asked myself in going through this is, well, what confirms the promises that God has made to us? Well, as we discussed on the front end, Luke's gospel is designed to do that. It's designed to help us to be certain of what we believe. We don't need our personal choir of angels moment. We have the scriptures. All believers, I think this is is important, all believers have a treasury of God's faithfulness to his people through the ages in the scriptures. And in addition to that, if we have been a believer for any length of time, we likely have treasured up examples of God's faithfulness in our own lives. I can look back on some very difficult times in my life and now see how the Lord was faithful to me and to my family in the midst of those. And I can be encouraged by that. But most importantly, we should regularly visit the faithful acts of God as revealed in his word. And we should do as Mary did. We should ponder those things. We should think on them. We should mull them over. We should take comfort from them. We should take encouragement from them. I found a book called Word Pictures in the New Testament. And it talks about this word ponder that is used here. This word ponder means placing things together for comparison. So in other words, Mary would go over each detail in the words of Gabriel and and the shepherds, what they told her. And she would compare these sayings with the facts that had so far um, come to light. And she would brood over this. And they're using that word in a positive sense there. She would brood over this with a mother's high hopes and joy. I've recently begun reading through the book of Psalms and taking notes on each psalm to sort of capture the essence of the psalm in just a few sentences. And I'm amazed at, I think I'm up to 34, 35 at this point, I'm amazed at how many of the psalms are David or some other writer just reminding themselves of the faithfulness of God and being encouraged by that. So friends, we need to open that treasure chest And we need to avail ourselves of its riches. Lay them out for comparison. Rejoice at the beauty and the consistency and the life-altering truth of Scripture. Ponder all these things. Talk about them with others because they are the words of life. We need refreshment from the Lord 
And one of the best ways to get that is to draw from the treasury of faithfulness, of his faithfulness, to us and to his people throughout the ages. And finally this morning, and and the band can begin um, returning to the stage if they want to, um, finally this morning we see that the shepherds returned rejoicing. This is verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. You know, we're used to seeing these shepherds as a tableau, right? Frozen in time in a manger scene. That's how we see them often at Christmas. But they were real people with real lives that went on after this moment. And we don't know what life held for these shepherds after this night. We know nothing of their families. We don't know any of their names. I don't believe they're ever mentioned again in Scripture. But we do know that this night, their life changed and their outlook on life changed. They went back to their ordinary lives, having seen extraordinary things. John Long, in his commentary on Luke, says, The shepherd's extraordinary experience does not withdraw them from their daily and ordinary duties, but enables them to perform them with increased gladness of heart. I think that's such an important point. Sometimes our rejoicing and our praise for God is a function of our temporal circumstances rather than our eternal circumstances. But, you know, God hasn't promised us a continuous stream of mountaintop experiences in life. We're not called to chase the extraordinary. We're called to be faithful in the ordinary. Because most of the Christian life is just being faithful in the ordinary circumstances of life in which God has placed us. Paul says to the Christians at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. So we can rejoice in the midst of ordinariness because of the extraordinary work that Christ has done on our behalf. So as you leave here this morning, no matter what's before you in the coming week, no matter what's before you in the coming months or the coming years, no matter what transpires on the global stage this afternoon, ponder these events in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago and leave here this morning like the shepherds, glorifying and rejoicing because of all you have seen and heard. Because God has been gracious to you in revealing himself to you, just as he did to the shepherds all those many years ago. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us a Savior all those many years ago. We thank you for producing us faith to live by him and to make him our hope and desire. May we rest in him as a refuge build on him as a foundation, walk in his ways, and follow him as our guide. May we never be ashamed of him or his words, and may your spirit preserve us from this present evil age as we look forward to the return of Christ. We ask this in the name of Christ.